0: ¿Qué desea ordenar?
1: Una Big Mac y. oye, Pedimos 10 McNuggets. Sí, miti miti. Dale. ¿Te acuerdas cuando mamá te hacía compartir y peleabas?
0: ¡Hey! <risa> más respeto a tu hermana mayor. El amor de hermanos deal de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como McNuggets de 10 piezas y una Big Mac por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar producto individual a precio regular.
2: Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian
3: Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garrity, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to the Say It Ain't Contagious podcast where we discuss baseball, politics, social justice, and the relationship. Between all of that, this is Lincoln Mitchell. We are very grateful and happy today to have a special guest, Arnold Townsend. For those of you who don't, who aren't really from San Francisco, Reverend, Reverend Arnold Townsend is a leading civil rights activist. I would go as far as to say a civil rights legend in San Francisco, who's had an enormous impact. ...on that city over the last half century, going back to when he was an undergraduate at San Francisco State... ...and active in the strike there, and then in the struggles in the Fillmore and Against Redevelopment... ...and the Western Edition, and politics throughout all those years, a one-time candidate for supervisor of San Francisco. And when I called him, uh, because of a book about San Francisco for which I'm doing some research... ...we found ourselves talking baseball within minutes, and I learned that he is a huge baseball fan who has almost an 80-year history as a baseball fan and player, and I found his insights extremely valuable and fun, and so I'm very pleased that he's joining us today. So welcome to the Say It Ain't Contagious podcast.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Lincoln. It, it, it's great to be here, and uh, and it would be great to talk about something other than politics, but baseball is politics, and, and we don't really right, recognize it enough. You know, there are people who politically have made up their mind that sports is all that is wrong with this country. So they denounce major, what we consider major sports at every turn. And the fact of the matter is they don't understand that uh, because of sports, a whole lot of political and even civil rights headway was made in this country. Uh, Jackie Robinson, for example, had much as much to do if not more with opening the eyes of everyday average white Americans to the inequities of our society, uh, than a lot of our marches and civil rights demonstrations did. People who turned off, who are turned off to marches and civil rights speeches, like baseball. They were introduced through baseball. Go ahead.
3: No, so maybe just by way of background, why don't you tell us about your journey in and around baseball, starting you know as as a child? And, and now I want to just for our listeners. You know, you grew up in Southern California. I'd like you to also touch on how you ended up having the good sense to become a Giants fan, despite growing up in Los Angeles.
4: Well, a couple of things. Uh, I I started like, just to start out with the civil rights portion of it. I was conceived in Oklahoma, a little all-black town that my mother and father were from. They were both away at college and came home. Uh, for 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 vacation or whatever it was and hooked up then and, and I happened. But my mother left left there, our little town Rentisville. She left there to go to Phoenix to have me because we had and she had an aunt in Phoenix with my great aunt. And because you know for childbirth by the time we got to we were in a farming rural area, by the time she could have gotten to a hospital that would take us. There were hospitals she would have passed up on the way to get to a hospital that would take us. We both could have died. So she lived in Phoenix for months while she was waiting to deliver me. And I was born in a Native American uh, Catholic father's clinic in in uh, just outside Phoenix in Mesa City because they didn't take black people in the hospitals in Phoenix either in those days, 1943. 1949 with my grand, my grand, but my mom and dad were already in LA, but my grandparents that I was living with uh, at the time, we packed up and left the farm and moved to LA in 1949. I got to LA in 1953. Uh, I had a neighbor that lived down the street from me who was a baseball player. And let's see, I would have been 10 show Eddie was about 13 or 14 and he took me to Harvard Park which is famous in in circles because that's the baseball diamond that turned out a lot Sparky Anderson Billy Consolo who used to play with the Senators in the White Sox and then later on uh, after me uh, was uh, uh, Daryl Strawberry and Eric Davis uh, learned baseball at Harvard Park well, I learned it there, and I was probably, to my knowledge, the first Black kid to play baseball at Harvard Park. And uh, uh, so I got turned on to baseball in 1951 when I was uh, eight, uh, and Willie Mays was a rookie. I knew about Jackie Robinson, knew who he was, and uh, you know, all my family was Dodger fans, and I would have been maybe, but... Willie Mays as a rookie in 51 captured my attention because he was 20 and I was eight. So he was the big league ball player that was closest to me in age that I knew. And because of that, he became my hero. And therefore I became a giant fan because we didn't have big league teams on the West Coast. So you could pick anybody you wanted. My buddy was a Boston Red Sox fan. Cause he never, uh, you know, he's from that area, and that was it. And then my other buddy Marvin, he was an LA Angels fan, but I'm talking minor leagues. He never graduated to big league ball. He stayed an Angel fan, and, and then they, we, then later on, we got the California Angels. But um, he was a, you know, minor league LA Angels who played, by the way, at Wrigley Field in Los Angeles, which was a replica. Of Wrigley Field in Chicago up to the ivy on the walls. They had the same tower the ivy on the wall and we loved that place when we were kids uh, all summer long we went to games there and uh whether we had money or not we usually ended up inside somewhere so I became a giant fan a little bit later a couple of years into it maybe by 54 when the Giants won the pennant I got into that that was heresy in my family, my neighborhood, my school, and my church. Being a giant fan was heresy. And so I tell everybody, uh, I really was an abused child and 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 should have been able to call the police on people had I known then what I know now, because I was mistreated, <laughs> I mean, really badly by grown adults. Uh, uh, grown adult men who treated me badly and talked to me very badly because I was a giant fan and people today may not appreciate, you know, it's a slogan beat LA and it's really cute now. But at then that there, there was like really kind of a bloodletting. Uh, that was that, that meant something to, to you, you hated the Dodgers when I was coming up. And if you were a Dodger fan, you hated the Giants. There was almost never a series between the two in those days of three or four game series where there was not a physical fight confrontation. The most famous one being uh, Juan Marshall, John Roseboro, and the bat. Uh, I don't even remember remember who was pitching for the uh, uh, Dodgers at that at that uh, in that it was, game.
3: It was Sandy Koufax.
4: Sandy Koufax. Okay, and and you know. This, this was serious, serious stuff. And the, the, for those who are young, it didn't come from Sandy Koufax. It wasn't him throwing at, at, at a pitcher, but it was the Roseboro throwing the ball back that grazed the ear or got too close to the ear of Marshall. That's how the game was played in those days. The Giants had a pitcher named Sal the Barber Magley. Sal Magley was called the barber, not because his, his dad was a barber, but because how close he shaved hitters when he was pitching. I mean, it was um, it, it, it was such a different game. Um, early win, they said, would throw a ball at his mother. And he said, yeah, if she crowded the plate, <laughs> I would throw at her. You know, the game has changed. You see big league hitter hitters go up to the plate and take their spikes and dig in. When I was playing baseball and I was a pitcher and when I was learning to pitch, if a guy came in and dug his cleats in on you, you automatically knocked him down. Nobody dug cleats in on you and you let them get away with it. So, but I became a giant fan in that way, but growing up in LA after they moved there and you're growing up in LA as a um, Giants fan in those days, it just didn't work. It, it, it I, I know that that at least peripherally had something to do with me uh, never going back to LA. When I moved here to finish school, after I got out of the army, I moved here to finish school. And, uh, you know, I, there's a lot to this. I got out of the army in September of 67. September the 2nd, Fort Lewis, Washington, and I flew here um, because I was going to visit a buddy of mine for a couple of hours, and I was going home. Well, I never left for the first 30 days. My folks didn't know I was back in the country because if you think about it, uh, that was the summer of love, and if you have any idea of what was going on in San Francisco, it was hard to leave San Francisco, man. (laughs) (laughs) It, It was hard. I mean, it was a constant, never-ending party, and I was here. and And in the September second, I did make it to uh, Candlestick for the first time in uh, in, uh, in in that year. Uh, it was the end of the season, and the Giants weren't very good that year. But I still had to go out and see them. I'm, you know, I'm a Giant fan to the point if. Uh, they lose 111 games. It's okay. Cause they're going to win it all next year. I believe that there are no major personnel changes. It's a flat out awful team, but uh, you know, the first pitch of the next season, you're in first place. I'm and a this- fan like that. I'm that kind of fan. Yeah.
3: And this year they, they're in second place and we're a weekend. So it could, we're, we're doing okay.
4: We're doing okay. And I, you know, I mean, we've got a couple of super teams in our division, uh, the, the San Diego and the, uh, the Giants. But today, I believe the Giants are going to win it all.
2: Can I ask you a question? You, yeah. you mentioned that, you know, the, the bitter blood rivalry between the Giants and the Dodgers. And for, for people who don't have that kind of memory of, of that sort of thing, when do you think that really changed? And, and do you have an idea of why? Because, I mean, there's certainly clearly still a rivalry but so much of it whether it's Giants Dodgers Red Sox Yankees seems created by the media and hype when do you think it stopped being just an in your bones guy versus guy kind of rivalry
4: it's it it started when you started giving everybody a trophy man that ended it when you when when you get a trophy i mean you know the eras and and i'm not saying that it was all good. You know, one of the reasons the good old days are so good is because we were so young. okay. So I accept that that it's not everything's not wasn't better. But um, I grew up playing, like I said, at Harvard Park and then w- what used to be Will Rogers playground in Watts. The Prince Hall Masons, which is a Black Masonic Art order, sponsored a league for boys at Will Rogers and Watts. I think it's maybe Jackie Robinson Park now. <clears throat> and so we, uh, and it was an eight, eight team league. We had everything the white kids had. We had two men who were our managers and coaches. Uh, we had an end of the year banquet. Uh, they gave out, you got, you, you got trophies. Every kid didn't get a trophy. First place and second place got trophies. One year we won a second place trophy. We have company at the house. My mom says, oh, Arnold, show them your trophy. I don't know where that is. Don't nobody put second place trophies on their dresser. You know, my mom would, because that's my mom. She loved me and thought everything I did was great. She had to go in my room and find it in the closet up under some clothes or something. I didn't know what happened to it, because I didn't care about a second place trophy. So I think when we got this era and, and, and you know, and I think it's not, I don't think it's that healthy that everybody gets a trophy because what we got was when we lost, we didn't get a trophy. We got a, y'all come back next year and see what happens. So what you're and saying pra- is. When we lost, we didn't get a trophy. We practiced more and worked harder. So did the 2014
2: did the 2014 Giants World Series not count then since they were a wild card team? That's my view of that. No,
4: it, it counted. Yeah. You can go in the playoffs, <laughs> but if they had lost, don't nobody care. If they hadn't gone all the way to the World Series, nobody cared on that team about just making the playoffs. I mostly just you said know, that for most Lincoln. baseball players, they don't care about that stuff, man. Most athletes, they don't really care about second place. I'm telling you.
3: I used to coach Little League Baseball not that long ago because my kids are now in their you know, college age. And I'll tell you something. The kids didn't like the participation trophies either. No. They just a scrap of oh. metal. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't want to take it home. You'd see them in the garbage cans on the way. You know, we had to distribute them because that was the, I, you are know, supposed you, to distribute
4: them. The only kids who cared about trophies, and, and, and I don't want to say anything mean or impolite, are the ones whose mamas made them care. And, and I really mean, you know, when, when kids are raised by people who don't have an understanding of sport and and and, and they don't uh, participate in the right way, you know, those people – oh, I was going to send my daughter a text. I can't because I'm on my phone. Excuse me for a minute. I digress. But my daughter's in town from New York, and she came just to visit her dad and her and her husband, and I'm having the ball Um uh, She lives in New York, and she's a very prominent jazz singer. And she's a a, a resident artist at Birdland, one of the oldest jazz clubs in the country. And I'm really proud. And I just met her in 2018, which is another podcast. I, I had one daughter who unexpectedly passed away, my only daughter, I thought, in 2018, in January. And in September, I met a brand new daughter, so but that's another podcast to, to talk that about. Sound, that maybe.
1: sounds like a whole other story um it,
4: it is an amazing story and we'll we'll talk about it um, well you natalie, have a- my daughter uh the singer is natalie douglas youtuber and she'll be here in july at the nico uh, uh inside the nico hotel is feinstein's the club I'll be, she'll be there in july
1: i'm in new york i'll have to check her out here uh you live in new york I do, yes, I do.
4: Now that we're coming back, she'll be at Birdland monthly or quarterly. She does uh, tributes to Sarah Vaughan or Judy Garland or somebody, and she does them at Birdland. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, one of the things I miss about pre-pandemic life is live music, so um, that that delights me a great deal.
4: San Francisco, in this pre-pandemic, this town that used to be so great, has almost no live music. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's one place when you're out here, if they get to come back after the pandemic, you know, a lot of places are gonna be out yeah. of business. But Sheba Lounge on Fillmore Street has live music every night, even if it's just a pianist or a piano player. In my world, there's a difference between a pianist, pianist and a piano player, but they're both great. They're just different. Yeah. And and so uh yeah, but if yeah, check it out. Check it out.
1: Will do. I have to ask you, Reverend Townsend, uh, uh, about this. It's, I, I, I watched in, in the, a wonderful oral history that you gave a couple of years back in which you were talking about your youth. Uh, and the, the quote, I really wrote down the quote. You said you were describing your youth when the interviewer was asking you. You said, everybody in the world deserves to grow up in the kind of community that I grew up in. Uh, and I don't know if you remember saying that, but I think you're alluding to oh. it here in your discussion. So I mean, part of the question really that, that, that was prompted by that amazing quote was the role of sport in, in, in the communities that you grew up in, in Black communities. And partly I asked because you represent, you know, this massive migration of African Americans from, you know, the South and the West into California. And in terms of sport. I mean, you already alluded to this when you were talking about, uh, you know, Eric Davis and Dallas Strawberry, you know, the most impactful migration stream in American sport history, I'm here to tell you, I think, is this migration stream and the enormous talent that it produced in Southern California and in Northern California, right? So you're growing up around, I mean, you know this better than me, I'm telling you something you know, around amazing athletes at the grassroots level, and many of them become pros, right? Whether it's in, you know, the Bay Area, you know, later on, or certainly in Southern California. So I wonder if you could speak more about, I mean, you alluded to it, you know, when you talked about trophies and, you know, when you played baseball, but it's it's clear that that sport was really important in these communities at that time.
4: Yes. Well, let me tell you, I grew up, growing up in L.A. when I grew up, the high schools were huge. I mean, our graduating classes were five and six hundred people in what they used to call the old Southern League in L.A., which was Manuel, Dorsey, Fremont, Jeff, Washington and L.A. High. Jeff was the smallest school of all. It was the blackest school on the east side of L.A. And uh, and, and it had a very small population. But everybody was an athlete, so they were competitive. Uh, I'm serious. I, I mean, you know, there'd be maybe 300 guys to go out for football. Close to uh, maybe eh, maybe 50 to 75, if not more, tried out for the baseball team. These were large school populations, everybody played ball. Even in those days, even the gangsters were athletes. You know, uh, because we had gangs. I mean, they didn't kill each other very often at all, but a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting. And, you know, I wasn't in a gang. I was an athlete. That's kind of an ironic statement because we would fight, but we didn't call ourselves gang. We called ourselves athletes. I mean, we would fight if we had to. Uh, against the other gangs. And, and, uh, but one of the things about it, you know, while you had to cross turf, athletes almost got a pass because you knew a guy on that other side of town that you played with. And if he was around, he looked out for you. Now, if he wasn't around, you're going to have to throw hands or run. But but I think that, that one, that's one of the most important things that happened. And And growing up, just like I just said, being able to cross territory because you were an athlete. And then we moved. I I, I I was in Watts till I was about 10 with my grandparents and I started living with my parents. And we bought a home in LA in South Central, but it was an integrated neighborhood. We integrated the neighborhood. And so all of a sudden I'm, I'm in the neighborhood and there are all these white kids. And Asian kids and now I'm so old that when I went to elementary school in Watts, my elementary school was integrated. There were white kids in school with me. And I had not had but in any real dealings with white kids when I got to LA because I'm from an all black town in Oklahoma. Oklahoma at one time had 28 all black towns. Um uh um. And so we we were in one of those towns and I saw white people when we went to town and there was a family that lived their property, I guess, was contiguous to us. But we were on farmland and they were ranchers and uh, they became rodeo champions later on in, in, in life. And, uh, you know, the guys, the kid I used to play with did, um, can't remember their last name now it'll come to me but he was a became a, a rodeo champion but anyway so i got to la and in la we spent our days in the summer riding our bikes we would have outings well tomorrow we're going to go to griffith park we're going to ride our bikes from south central to because you had to have a bike in la if you didn't have a bike you couldn't go anywhere and if your bike broke you had to fix it man or you were stay stuck because the buses, that, that wasn't working in LA in those days. And, or we would say tomorrow, we're gonna go to the beach. And if you didn't have money, you'd pack a lunch like you did for school. Some of us would pack extra sandwiches because we know everybody ain't had it like that. And that was that, that was how we grew up. Uh, people say, what was it like growing up in LA? I said you ever watched Leave it to Beaver? And they said, "Yeah." I said, "Believe it or not, very similar, except most of uh, except our group of guys was integrated, and two most of our moms worked. There were two or three moms on the block that didn't work, and they were like the block moms. And I say I grew up in an era when our country almost made it. Our country almost made it." We moved into the neighborhood. The neighborhood stayed intact for about six years, and then the the, the real estate blockbusters came in and start telling the white neighbors they're coming. And they started moving, cause they were coming, meaning us, the black. No, we're already here, and nothing happened. We played together when the when the white neighbors had a barbecue. We went up to their house and ate. I remember one of my friends, he had a sister named Bernie, they were Irish. And uh, I'm walking up the street and his dad and and his dad's brothers, his uncles, they're sitting on the porch, they're they're barbecuing and they're sitting on the porch drinking beer. And I walk up the street, he had a little sister, Bernie and they started, hey Bernie, here comes your boyfriend. And that was the joke in the neighborhood that I was Bernie's boyfriend. And there was nothing said about it. And we were getting, you know, to where it made a difference. We were probably about 12 by now. Wasn't a big thing. But all of a sudden, they started moving. And surprisingly, we moved, not long after that. But this idea that they were coming, we played together, we partied together, we grew up together.
2: Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. (laughs) Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. When I
4: had a... Let's see. Must have been about my 13th birthday party. It was the first party where girls were there, and we were supposed to dance. Well, I got in trouble because my uncles, they came and brought me cash, and I left my own party because I had enough money to buy a, a ball glove that I had been eyeing, and it was a Saturday, and I had to get to the sporting goods store before it closed to get this new glove, so everybody's looking for me in my own party. And you picked a when glove I over back,
2: girls? Huh? You picked a glove over girls?
4: At 13, I did. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. By, by Bernie
3: f- couldn't have been too happy about that.
4: By, by 14 or 15, I didn't. And therein probably ended my potential for the big leagues because I discovered girls. <laughs> I swear to God. I, and there's nothing that tells me I wouldn't have made it. Good fastball, great breaking ball. But damn them girls, man.
3: (laughs) So tell us about Paul Blair, who who did make it, right?
4: Paul Blair made it, and he kind of discovered girls, but he had more discipline than I did (laughs) when it came to the girls. Uh, Paul, who passed recently, before I got to see him again. We have talked on the phone, but but, um, uh, Paul, now I'm going to tell you how much talent there was in L.A. On Starting in the seventh grade is when Paul and I really started playing ball together. We were in the seventh grade, but we played in our summer league at Will Rogers. We played against high schoolers because that's how good we were. We were way too good for a junior high league. And I don't think, I'm thinking back, I don't think there was anybody on our team that was in high school. But the guys we played against were like Kenny Washington whose dad had been, you know, in the uh in the uh, 30s or 40s was a quarterback in the NFL uh before the Whitewash started. Uh he he and Bob uh what was Bob's last name? Bob Livingston, I believe it was. They were like city co-players of the year in baseball in about 58 or 59 because I was as a senior until 61. We played against these guys and we ended up taking second. That was the second place trophy that we didn't care anything about. Uh, we we were going to play against them and these little kids were playing against the high school and people came to watch us play. Well, Paul was on our team, but Paul didn't bat cleanup. Paul was the leadoff hitter, because we had all kind of kids that, that had more power than Paul. My best friend growing up, in LA who lives in Texas now, Ron Waddy. Ron could, the, the the left field fence was the tennis courts at Will Rogers. Uh, 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 Waddy hit balls off that fence and he wasn't the only one on our, our team. And I think that fence was either 353 or 357 and we were in junior high. These are the kids, there were no fences in center and right. So a lot of what should have been home runs got caught because if you could hit a long way, they just backed up as far as they could to catch you. But in left, you had to stop. But these are the kids that were on that team. Brock, Davis, Brock Davis, who uh, was an outfielder and uh, whose claim to fame, if I'm not mistaken, when he was in Houston, he was the last out uh, as a pinch hitter and a Juan Marichal no hitter. If, 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 and um, but he made the big. He had a, a, a several cups of coffee in the big leagues from our team. Uh, Ernest Greenfield, who was our third baseman, who was as good a hitter as anybody on our team. Um, he, he was our third baseman. We were a little short at second because uh, well, Willie played second for Willie Williams played second for us a bit. Willie ended up playing a little the last years of Negro ball. Um, that I was scared to go to. I wanted to, but I didn't want to get my, you know, pro record messed up for college. Nobody was keeping records at in the Negro Leagues by then. I, I could have done it. Uh, he did it. And uh, trying to remember Ron played left field and third base for us. Uh, Alfred Blanchard, who was a great football player, was our catcher, big guy. Um, he and Larry Holmes split duties as catch- We had some really good, good good ball players. Uh, Roscoe Proctor was one of our pitchers. He signed. I was trying to talk to the. I dropped out of uh, Mount Sac, Mount San Antonio College, a two-year school, in out near Pomona, because uh, uh, I didn't get along with the coach. And I was trying to talk to the, or talking to the White Sox and the Phillies, trying to get a little more money out of them. I mean, I wasn't getting. Well, they didn't give out a lot of big money no, those days, and if they did, I wasn't getting it. But I was going to get some money. And I was trying to get a little more because I wanted to buy a new uh, Chevy. And I, I wanted to, uh, you know, and I had to give my mom and dad some money. So to do both, I had to get a little more money. And while I was trying to negotiate a little bit, I got uh, a draft notice. I got drafted in the Army. And that, uh, that, that ended pretty much baseball after that. Uh, my plan was to give baseball one more try when I got out of the Army at 24 years old. And I was going to San Francisco State. And, you know, we'd been on strike, the student strike. And I was a member of the BSU. And me and a couple of other guys, friends of mine, uh, Fast Eddie, and somebody else, we were going to try out for the state college team. So we're walking in front of the BSU office with our gloves and bats and shoes. And one of the BSU members said, where are y'all brothers going with all that? So we're going to try out for the baseball team. They said, well, fellas, we boycott an athletic department. So that was the end of baseball. So you chose uh,
1: activism as a result, right? I mean, here you are at San Francisco State in this extraordinary moment, right? Uh, yeah. The strike and, it wasn't and a, everything else.
4: And it, it wasn't really much of a choice. I mean, yeah. it was an easy choice, though I loved baseball, though I did want to give it one more shot. Uh, we knew what was really important at that time and, and combating racism had it all over uh, 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 baseball. As you can see, people are choosing now over their sport that they love. Aaron Hicks, I don't know if you read the article, but Aaron Hicks of the Yankees took a mental day, the day Dante Wright, the day after Dante Wright was murdered because he told his manager, uh, you know, I, I, I can't do it today. And, for, and to his manager's credit, and to society's credit, we've come so far that his manager said, I get it, I get it. And you can, um, you can have the day. And um, and if this stuff keeps happening, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a lot of athletes, black ones, but probably not just black, start taking a season in, in basketball, baseball, and football. I can see that happening. Because it's because people are becoming more and more drastic about something's got to happen. This can't keep happening, and if it keeps happening, I just can't run out and play ball every day. You know, we you, we we've got to keep things in perspective. I uh, I was reading somewhere where. A baseball player was talking to his dad, who had worked, I think, in a steel mill or something. The black baseball player can't remember who it is now. And he's, um, and he was telling his dad how much trouble they're giving him about his contract and stuff like that. And his dad was telling him, "Well, son, I hear you, but don't get carried away." And he said, "No, dad, you don't." He said, "Son, you play ball for a living, man." Yeah, dad, but you don't understand. See that, son, you play ball for a living, man. You know, in other words, I went to the steel mill every day or wherever I went or to the auto plant and you play ball. So, you know, yeah, you got to be treated right with dignity, respect, and fairly when it comes to finances, but you play ball for a living. And most of us, no matter how much we love our work, certainly me would have played ball for a living. If I was given the choice of giving up five years of my life, you know, when I was younger, or maybe starting one game in the big leagues, I'd have probably chose the five years, probably, but I would have had to, I would have wanted to think about it overnight. Mm-hmm. I would have asked, it was, Can I have a day, can I give you an answer tomorrow? Because for many of us, that's where baseball fit in our lives and in our dreams, our hopes and desires. Uh, uh, One of my favorite baseball quotes, guy says, yeah, me and my best friend, so-and-so, we used to lay on the riverbank and fish in Kansas. And we used to talk about what we wanted to be. He wanted to be the president of the United States. I wanted to be a real big league ball player, like maybe Honus Wagner. But as it turned out, neither one of us got our wish, Dwight Eisenhower. So in other words, he was the president, but to keep things in perspective, he'd have much rather been a big leaguer. And I, I, there, there are probably a few presidents that would have preferred big league ball, or at least major league sport over being president if they'd had their way
3: and, and we would have been a lot better off if they had had their way in some of those <laughs> cases well
4: for some of them uh as it turns out now you know while my family was totally for adlai stevenson as it turned out now dwight eisenhower wasn't bad or you know when you put him up against the kind of stuff we get today uh what what wasn't bad at all uh we've had some uh unbelievable bad choices. When you go back and look in the background of, uh, of Presidents Woodrow Wilson, who show who had a premiere showing of Birth of a Nation in, in the White House and thought it was the greatest movie he's ever seen.
2: I'm very proud that my high school was named after him. I really got to tell you that, buddy. <laughs> That's yeah. Yeah, not, well, not a good one.
4: <laughs> I actually kind of lucked out. I went to two high schools, Manual Arts, which, you know, that's some good stuff. And the other one was uh, Susan Miller Dorsey, which turned out a, gr- a lot of great athletes, uh, by the way. Dorsey High in L.A. But Susan Miller was the first female school uh, superintendent in L.A. So that's not bad.
2: They did a better job naming them than they did in West I, Virginia. I them. did not oh, attend. I
3: did not my, attend Woodrow Wilson High School, but I played yeah. baseball against Woodrow Wilson High School. <laughs> Oh, you did. In, in San you, Francisco. Well, and I did okay in that game. I think I got a, I drew a walk and stole a base. But among, fittingly, among the more well-known or uh, alumni of Woodrow Wilson High School in San Francisco is Dan White.
4: Yeah, Dan White. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's heavily black. Yeah. school. A lot, lot, lot of good basketball players. They used to uh, be real good.
2: Arnold, can I ask you, you, you mentioned Aaron Hicks the other day, um yeah. sitting out the game. And then, of course, in the last year or two in baseball, we've seen an increasing amount of, I don't know about activism, but certainly awareness, maybe not compared to some of the other sports, but more than baseball has tended to have. Do you think that where baseball sits today in society, do you think if players were were increasingly uh, active, if if they became activists on social issues, do you think that it would have the same kind of impact that it might have at one point? Or do you think it's just too niche to, to to have any sort of impact?
4: No, it'll have a big pack, big impact. And a lot of players who do opt out for activism will catch a lot of help because while in uh, popularity in many places it's gone down, it is still a white sport. And there are a lot of uh, uh, backwards or uh, right wing white people who consider that their sport and have worked hard to keep it as white as possible. Uh, You know, it's no coincidence that uh, you don't get the number of black kids playing baseball. You know, uh, that's one, because the kind of game it is, but it was always that kind of game when a lot of black guys were playing and when we loved it. Baseball is a sport that's easy to love, especially once you start playing it. Uh, I've always said, how much you can appreciate a one-nothing ball game depends on how much baseball you play. And I think that, that's been ever thus. You know, the, 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 it was that way when we were kids. But people are, I, 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 there are a certain number of people who are offended by great black baseball players. And, and more so than other sports, they always want to talk about the great, you know, natural talent. Not the thinking that goes into it. And you can't play baseball to any level, of 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 of, of, of uh, at any top level, without being cerebral. You know, in my thinking, it's the most cerebral, strategic game. Because when you're playing, the reason I say one nothing game, how much you appreciate depends on how much you play, because those of us who played it know there is so much going on in a one nothing ball game. More more going on than in a game where everybody just scoring, because then no game you hit the ball, you run and try to score, and and but in one another game you're thinking that you know this guy is throwing balls that it don't look like we're gonna get a lot of hits. How can we score when we're not doing a lot of hitting? How can we get a run across the plate to tie this thing up without a hit? Because that looks like what it's going to. That stuff is going on every minute. And you know what's going on and you're looking for it when you know the game. And so trying to get kids to play it, you know, in the black community, for example, is is one of the ways you get them to learn to like baseball is taking them to the games. And the pageantry, I, I had a girlfriend once and she was in law school. And she used to like to go to games with me but she preferred going to the A's game. I went to more A's game when I was with her cause they didn't have anybody there. And we would sit up high and she would study and take a nap while, while I'm enjoying the game but she liked the pageantry. She just liked looking at the green field. And then she started to learn a little bit about baseball but knew nothing about it. So getting kids to the game and getting them in the atmosphere to turn them on to the game is real, real important. And now we live in a a time where it's hard to just wake up and say, let's go to the game and go down to ballpark.
1: When
0: you get Xfinity Internet, Flex is included free. And finding what to watch on TV is now as easy as popcorn. Show me my favorites. Yes!
2: So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. (laughs) Hiya, pal. Where new stories meet tales as old as time.
1: Enchanté, mon ami.
2: And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line.
4: I was a boy you could go to the ballpark and uh, get in when you had no money and so sometimes now I have an extra ticket and I'll find a kid and if a kid is at uh, Oracle Park by himself he's a baseball nut so if, when I have extra tickets I don't sell them I look around for kids like that and say hey man you want to go in the game and you know they go in the game, they're usually sitting near me and, uh, they, they, they love it. And, you know, they're, they're really grateful, but I think, uh, trying to get the game back into the cities and not just black kids. There's not a lot of baseball played in San Francisco anymore. I don't know if you know, but, uh, Kimball field, you know, by Hamilton playground, they, uh, that's that's they took it over they put turf in it and they still got baseball diamond but it's really about soccer and lacrosse
3: you know i'll tell you a story about that Uh, you know rossi park by usf yeah yeah okay so so my place in san francisco is right near rossi park and uh, it's where my mom lives and i'm staying there and i used to love it you know she she moved there in the mid-80s but you'd hear the sounds of baseball Playing softball games, and as you were working or whatever, and I'm sitting there doing some work in my mom's place, and I hear the sound of the baseball, of the people, and I look out, and they're playing kickball on the oh, baseball yeah. diamond.
4: These these people who are determined to make kickball and dodgeball a sport for adults. That's what you played when you were little kids, and what you were doing, you were honing your athletic skills as you got older and you graduated to baseball, football, basketball, that's not a sport. I'm sorry. You know, I you, look, you have to pray for me. I don't dislike soccer, but I don't watch it because I don't understand it. And I've tried, here's why. Now you're gonna get a lot of stuff that you, you're gonna get some negative stuff behind what I'm getting ready to say but that's cool because it's going to be coming to y'all, not me. So I don't <laughs> uh, 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 and don't give out my, no, here's the thing. We're sitting here in the room and we go outside. I've got like a mall on the outside of my house in the Fillmore. It used to be Buchanan Street, now it's Buchanan Mall. And we sit there and we say, hey, let's get this ball from here at Golden Gate Avenue let's get it to um, uh, uh, McAllister Street down as 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 efficiently as possible. One guy says, hey, you run out there and I'll throw it to you and you'll catch it and take it to McAllister Another guy says, well, let's just run it down there, okay? Another guy even says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take this stick and I'll hit the ball down there and you run down there and catch it. All that works. Some guy says, let's kick it down there. And everybody says, who is this guy? That's the least efficient way <laughs> of getting it down there. And, and let's do it with no, without using our hands. And somebody says, who's this guy related to? How did he get here? He just came up with the least efficient way of getting the ball from point A to point B. And we're all going to do it that way. See, so you have to understand, having grown up and playing very American sports, I don't get it. I really don't get soccer. Why you would pick a sport to not use your hands? I know you can do it. And I know you can develop that skill. and It's a great skill. But Why?
2: It's funny because I I have a lot of friends who are, there's a subculture in, in England of baseball fans. It's a very niche group. Not many people are really into baseball in England, but there's a very small, passionate group that I've become friends with. And I. I'm on their podcasts and all that kind of stuff, and oh,
4: that's great! They, I'm glad they, there is, and I love them.
2: But it, yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. They they're, they pick. It's like you mentioned in L.A. They pick teams just based on how they want to pick teams because they they don't have to have a regional loyalty. So there are all these little groups for almost every team. And and when you, I, I've been on their podcast before, and I asked them, or they asked me, how we got involved in the sports, and I asked them how they got into baseball. And they have the exact opposite conversation that you have. They said, you know, we don't understand, or we didn't until recently. Why would anyone play baseball? We don't get it. It makes no sense. It's you know, they they call it a. They have a game called Rounders, which is like a a schoolgirl game, and uh, so they don't get it. But once they get it, they get it. So it's you know, what what you're used to.
4: and, And I understand, like what's it's cultural. They didn't play soccer in when I was a kid, right. We, you know, you would every now and then be somewhere and there may be some Latino folk playing. Uh, growing up, I don't remember, you know, in my neighborhood, African, there were African people in my neighborhood, but I don't remember them playing soccer. They Maybe they did. I never saw it. So, or or maybe there weren't enough of them uh, living where I lived to, to, to get a game going. But I don't, uh, I don't. And I know it's a big international game. I know there are thousands and thousands, if not millions of Africans that play it, that's wonderful. I ain't into it. Now, I will tell you, one of my great experiences, in 1978, you, you may remember the old Vinceremos Brigade, that after Castro, and they were going to lose their sugar crop, a bunch of young Americans went down to help harvest. Well, and after that, it became a thing that young radical Americans would go to Cuba and Cut cane, or they. Uh, then they, they later on they started building schools or hospitals. And but you was a work brigade. Well, I applied to go, and to show you, you know, I I, I realized God has always loved me even from day one. Because the year I picked to go, they don't, they they weren't going to work. It was the year of the World Youth Festival. Now there's a youth festival that goes on somewhere in the world. About every four or five years, I imagine it still does. The United States has never been a big part of it. Now there are countries from almost everywhere, and there are official delegations. But our delegation is unofficial; we aren't sponsored by the government because it's, I guess, there's a lot of radical countries involved. But the year I was selected, it was the World Youth Festival, In 1978. Uh, I was 35, and that was like the limit, you know. It was 18 or 14 to 35 and I got to Cuba, Havana, Cuba and there were 66,000 people from 144 different countries and it is by far the greatest two-week party I've ever been to in my whole life. I ain't never had so much fun or partied so hard non-stop ever. It was wonderful. And they had, it wasn't baseball season, but they played exhibition games for the festival. And it, they were held at the Universidad de Havana. And I went. I'm walking in there by myself. Now, the first man that I really played baseball with was my granddad, who had played Negro League ball, and along, and, and so did my Uncle Richard, Aunt murdie husband. And I get in the university, and I walk through, and I get to the stadium, and I turn the corner, and there is my granddad sitting there. The man looked just like my granddad. And he's wearing a suit, tie, and dress shoes. Well, my granddad, after he quit working at, on construction after he retired, like a lot of older Black men in the Black community would get up and put on a suit every day. They were going, we special. They just put on suit, and so, but that, and, and I sat there, and I sat next to this man, and my Spanish is not great, but I can get through, and I had a conversation with him about, it and he was an old baseball player. Um, I also met someone in Cuba who looked just like me, but you know, when they brought slaves over to the Western world, one brother would be on a ship that went to the United States, and another would be on a Ship that went to Brazil, or you know, the 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 Caribbean, or wherever. And so I know that's how that happened. But I got to watch baseball in Cuba, which is much different than here. The teams have like uh, they do cheers, and one side will go through their stuff, and then the other side will go through theirs, and uh, they have kungas and drums and music and in the stands while the game is going on. It is, it's, it's, it's different than here, but it's absolutely a wonderful experience. And I would highly, if you love baseball, you haven't seen baseball till you've seen it in Cuba. Okay. And, and you got to also know that baseball um, in Cuba was highly influenced by black players. Because, because before they could play in the big leagues, they played a lot of ball in the Caribbean, uh, um, and, and Puerto Rico South. I remember Willie Mays and all those people going over to Cuba to play ball and they loved it because they didn't have to deal with the racism that they had to deal with they, Well, first of all, they could play before 1947, they could play there. And then two, they didn't have to deal with all the, uh, uh, the discrimination and, and, and that kind of stuff. And segregation, and so I um, uh, uh, I I I I would highly recommend it. And one of the things I want to say is, you know, uh, I'm on a there's a a Facebook site called The Sounds of Summer. If you haven't checked it out, check it out and join it. And because uh, we pass a lot of great information on there, and I pass a lot of information about the Negro Leagues. But one of the things that I think is really funny is that you find a lot of people talk about the Negro Leagues and a lot of people talk about it, but they wouldn't like it because what they called hot dogging, the Negro Leagues was full of, you know, like Satchel Paige making all the infielders lay down or telling all of the outfielders to go sit in the dugout. I got this. And pitching a whole inning without outfielders and not letting anybody hit the ball to the outfield. You know, well, that's what they called, uh, that's what they called hot dogging. If you went and watch their games, they threw the ball to first base, you know, shortstop you get a ground ball and would throw it behind his back. You know, what what people call hot dogging they claim they well, what the Negro League ball players saying, we knew that the people in the stands had cleaned white people's toilets to make enough money to come to this game. We knew to earn money, they had taken abuse all week. And we know that in baseball, sometimes the games are one to nothing, but we felt obligated to give them a show and show that's why we played the way we did. That's why we did what we did when we were playing the game because Those people spent hard-earned money to come see us, and we wanted them to know that we knew that and we appreciated it. And what a difference in attitude between that and some of the prima donnas that we have playing ball now that think that the world owes them something. And, you know, and I love great athletes, but don't ever forget what some of those people went through just to be able to afford to come see you. So many people who love baseball are working class people, and uh, and and so you know appreciate them for uh, uh you know for for who they are. That you know, there are people sitting in those games. Everybody sitting in those games are not wealthy. They're, 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 they, they 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 struggled uh, to 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 be able to afford to go to the game. You know what does it cost now? If you've got three or four kids, some people can't take them at all and others maybe can afford to go to one game a year. You know, there's they're not a lot of people. And, and that's another thing that I think has changed baseball greatly is who's sitting in the stands now. The people, see they used to sit in the stands were people like my my dad who worked for the gas company but we could afford to go to games. But, you know, on a beginning sal, a starting salary now, I don't know how many games of, a guy that that's, digs in the street for the phone. Now, he later got promotions and all that and was doing quite well before he retired. But he started out as, as a, a worker, you know. They were the, the guys you see dig the street up when they had to go in the ground to do something with the gas lines. That's who he started out at. And so uh, that's another thing that's happened to us because of inflation. You've got a lot of people sitting in the stands who are there for the event, not because they're fans, but they can afford it more than real fans come. And those are the people who are into a lot of the behavior in the stands that none of us like. Uh, The woman who was yelling things at LeBron. You was not a basketball fan, man. She was there to be seen, she's sitting up close, right behind the player, because she and she's some kind of model. And she knows the camera's gonna be on the bench. And 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 uh um, they have a right to be there, but it doesn't help the game. It 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 doesn't help the game. That that that's that's my issue.
0: Reverend Arnold, at, at the risk of sounding a discordant note, I wanted to ask you one thing. About some of the stuff you've done working with neighborhoods, once you did get into activism post baseball, the the you you did a lot in terms of combating displacement, which used to be euphemistically called urban renewal or some slum, slum clearance, but really was was displacement of of the people who lived in those neighborhoods for real estate interests. And just the other day, the current secretary of transportation Pete Buttigieg made this comment that got a lot of mockery from right-wing types online. And knowing that we were going to talk to you, I wanted to ask you about it. He said that there's a lot of racism physically built into our highways. And again, that there was a lot of intentional misunderstanding about that, but I felt certain that you'd have a a perspective on it given what he was referring to there.
4: Well, let let me say um, a couple of things. Uh, One, uh, when you said, before I got into activism, if you had known my parents, I was born into activism. Okay, uh, during the 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 first whatever was the Desert Storm or whatever, you know, uh, Iraq. I asked my dad, Dad, what do you think about Saddam Hussein? My dad said, Well, I don't know much about the fella, but anybody got that many white people mad at him can't be all bad. <laughs> so you know, so because the whole Western world. Was supposed to stop, so that 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 the uh, first person I knew to own a Malcolm X album was my mother. So, you know, right? and so I I, I so it was I didn't get into it. I was born into it. Um, um, and, and urban renewal we call Negro removal, right? So that kind of leads leads into the kind of thing that Buddha Jack was talking about. All right, um, even things that people would never know that I talked about 28 all-black towns in Oklahoma. There were black towns all over, some that were thriving. Many people know about the black section, Greens, um, Greenwood, the black section of Tulsa, which was white success. Well, these towns, even the one I came from, was, was thriving probably had 10 or 15,000 people. But even when they built highways, they intentionally bypassed. And built around black towns that would have thrived if they could have had a um, a highway. If, if, if they'd been built, if the highway had been built going through their towns where they would have had the gas stations and the diners and even the hotels and, and that people would have stopped that and white people would have stopped that. And and quite frankly, if they'd stopped that, for example, at eaten in some of those. Diners along the highway, they would have become destinations once they tasted the food like they become now. So, you, so, so, what just on that thing, booty check. And then the other thing is when you talk about public accommodations, that wasn't uh, opening up public, integrating public, that wasn't just because black people wanted to sit next to white people in a restaurant or on the toilet. That was because your hotel, motel, or restaurant is on that highway. That's my highway. I pay taxes to keep that highway. So that highway ought to benefit me as well as you. So because you're on the highway, hell yeah, you got to let me eat there because you couldn't make a dime if you weren't on my highway that my tax money takes care of. But, uh, and, 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 but now, Here's the problem. When we were talking about desegregation rather than integration, there were two components. One was the uh, integration of public accommodations, that's where the integration comes. But the second was I then get because I didn't get to have access to the same capital that you have access to. And now I get to build my hotel, gas station highway, across the highway from you, and we compete and may the best man or woman win. But guess what? Because traffic go both ways, we probably can both win. But but when we started calling integration, we dropped that second part talking about access to capital. So yeah, what he's talking about, the racism that's built into everything in this country and trying to get white people to understand That doesn't make you a bad person. I had the same education pretty much in public schools that you had. I went to integrated high schools, uh, public schools in LA, elementary, middle, and high. Good education that I would put up against any private school education of the same era, era, because that's when schools meant something. But uh, I was given a white supremacist education just like you were. So that in itself doesn't make you a bad person. It's when you recognize and don't do nothing about it. it is what makes you a bad person. Or start lying to yourself that it's not true and that it doesn't exist. You know. So yeah, I've had, we've all had the same education, but not trying to correct it and playing right wing games like you're talking about, like you don't understand. You know, We don't understand racism. Well, racism been here for 400 years. And unless I'm mistaken, white people have been here the whole time. So how in the hell you don't know it? You you know, but it's I, it's okay until we start intentionally not correcting it and letting it continue and pretending like the people who that the racism is perpetrated against that it's their own fault. That's what makes you a jerk or you know, I, I got other terms that <laughs> I won't use because one, I'm on the radio, and two, I'm a preacher, and three, somebody's child may be listening because they like baseball. So, but I could say some things that are really gruff. But you know, this is w- that in everything that is wrong with this country, if you could just get folk to face up to the fact that if we fix the racism and every one of those things it would be shocking how much other things that are wrong would start getting right. If we would go into them and fix the racism first, that's all. Whether it's baseball or, you know, I mean, you know, you gotta be a real, real cretin to know that baseball ain't better since black folks start playing it. Now, are there great white players? Yes, and I love watching them play. I especially love watching them pitch because I'm an old pitcher, and I learned how to pitch in the era that the brushback and the bean ball, all that was cool. You know, I I like that kind of baseball. I like spikes flashing going in the second. Don't you don't want to get spiked? Don't get in the way. They're, they the, the you know, cats who slid in with the spikes high. They're infielders who learned how to avoid them. That's part of learning the game, you know. But I love that kind of, you know, the the, the beanballs, and the, you know, I, I like all that. I don't want to hurt nobody, but I don't want you taking me for granted when I'm out on the mound. You ain't digging in your spikes on me, so. But it's it's about fixing, what it is. I mean, look look at basketball. You know you you want to watch guys who only did a two handed set shot or you want to watch Dr. J or Michael Jordan. I mean, come on. If you appreciate athleticism and intelligence, you want to watch the game the way it's played today. And, uh, uh, you know, anybody who's a baseball fan who can't appreciate Bob Gibson, you're not a baseball fan. You're a racist who watches baseball. That's because if you like baseball, you love, I mean, Ricky Henderson, come on, man. Dave Stewart. And, 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 for me, and, and one of the things about sports for me as an activist, as I am, one of my favorite pitchers of all time was Tom terrific. Tom Seaver. I just love watching, you know, he's a right-hander. I'm a right-hander and his wind up in the, you know, Southern California, I mean, these these are the guys that I played against. I, I played against uh, um, Bob Boone, guy I was at, at junior college with. And I, I actually pitched against him my first day trying out. Uh, uh, Freed, Roger Freed, remember he hit quite a number of home runs for the Phillies. But we went to the same JC. And uh, I played basketball and guys knew that. So when I went, somebody said, "Hey, they're trying out for baseball." Well, I had brought my shoes and gloves and stuff because I knew tryouts were come. So they were in my locker in the basketball gym. I ran, grabbed them, ran out to the baseball da- diamond, and uh, the guys walked out. The the the, uh, the coach says uh, a man named Aaron Beatty was a great guy. This is they used to call me the Snake in basketball, and said, "What are you doing out here, Snake?" I said, "I'm trying out," and he said they. He said, oh, yeah, what position you play? I said, I'm a pitcher. And about three or four of the guys started laughing. And uh, coach tells me, go warm up. And I think it was kind of like, well, we'll get rid of this guy real quick. And uh I said, go warm up. So I ran down, to, with the, to, uh, told one of the back, backup catchers, warm him up. And so we went down the bullpen. I started warming up. So all of a sudden, I hear somebody holler, snake, you're in the game. And I look up, and the base—it's an inter squad game. Bases are loaded. The first string is hitting, and it's like second, third, and fourth hitters, or third, fourth, and fifth—the heart of the lineup. Uh, Roger Freed, Joe Keo, who played for the AIDS, and some other people had a brother, Marty Keo, and Matt Keo. Uh, I think Matt Keo was a nephew. Those, uh, those, that, that family. Joe is a. Uh, uh, who had a great junior college career, Roger, and I'm trying to remember who else. But the other guy, uh, uh, made the bigs for a minute too. I go in and I get out of the inning without giving up a run. Bases are loaded; these three guys are coming up, and so I was supposed to stay out for two more innings. The coach said, "You made the team. Go shower." And 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 so that that was that, that was my experience. And as it turned out, those guys, then because I had talent, accepted me. You beyond the, I don't know what they thought, you know, we were around each other for a whole season. I don't know, they, they never did anything insulting or racist towards me. And I was invited where everybody, but that was Southern California. And so, but what I'm saying is, they may have hated Black folk, but because I had talent, I was accepted on the team. Well, what did that do? That caused us to get to know each other. And that then begins to change all other kinds of dynamics you see i've had guys that i played ball with that i went to church with and they ended up going to church with me in my life and we've met each other because of the sports aspect of the relationship show uh yes i see the value and yes I, i i don't really like kids not playing sports young now when you get older you can do you with your life what you want. But for example, if you live in my house, you got to be involved in some kind of recreational activity or you make your kids play sports, I make them study. My job is to get them to do what I think is good for them. And I think athletic activity is good for you when your body and your mind is still developing. So yeah, I make them play. After they get a certain age, high school, my son went out for football, And didn't like it because he wasn't getting to play on the freshman team. So I'm going to quit. No, you ain't going to quit. You can't quit. We don't quit. And you don't have to play next year. But you got to finish what you started. But if I know what I know, somebody's going to become academically ineligible. Somebody else is going to get hurt. And you're going to get your shot. And when you get your shot, well, he ended up making all league, um, which was great. It wasn't baseball. But it was great. You know, And he got to college because of it. And that was even greater, you know. But, yeah, you know, the opportunities that we get to know each other and to, you know, sports and the Army put me with guys. I became lifelong friends with guys that we would have probably never talked and thought we never had anything in common if it had not been for well, in my case, baseball. I love basketball. I played it, but it wasn't baseball. You know, uh, my mom used to say he'd rather play baseball than eat when he's hungry.
3: Reverend Townsend, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And oh, are we through? I think we we're at about an hour and a half, so we kind of need oh, to wrap God, up. But I'm it's sorry. it's no, no. It's been a pleasure. We'd love to have you back at some point. Anytime. This is This has been absolutely fantastic, and I just want to thank you uh, uh, so much for joining us. These great, great stories and really great insight. And and it's always good for me to have other San Franciscans on the show because there is an anti-Giants bias in some (laughs) quarters, and I want to have us represented. So I just can't thank you enough uh, for joining us on the Say It Ain't Contagious
4: podcast. Well, maybe next time we'll talk about the charity event we're planning for people who are not Giants fans because they really need some help. That and sounds like will, a good idea. We yes. will do a charity event where we can hire some mental health professionals for them. And maybe we can get them straightened out.
3: I think that's a fine idea. That's
4: a deal. That yes. Uh, thank you, you very thank much Reverend. for the opportunity to talk about something else. Okay.
3: Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you this so much.
4: Thank you all so much. God bless you. Take care and be safe. Take care. Take care. Now y'all live in New York.
3: I live in New York. Frank lives in New York. Go to Birdland. Go to (laughs) Birdland. I think Frank and I will go.
4: And watch Natalie Douglas. God bless y'all. Take care. Bye-bye. All right.
0: Thank you, everyone. This has been the 14th episode of Say It Inc. Contagious. If you enjoy the show, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the show gain attention. And you can follow us on Twitter at... S-I-A-C pod. That's at S-I-A-C pod. I'm Stephen Goldman saying farewell on behalf of Lincoln, Frank, Adrian, Tova, Craig, and myself. Praise the Lord, pass the ammunition. We'll see you next time on Say It Ain't Contagious. If you've got an insurance question, you could talk to a park ranger, but the only quotes they'd probably give you would be about the beauty of a fallen leaf or ripples in a pond, not the kind that could save you money on your policies. Or you could talk to your local GEICO agent, who's an expert navigator of the insurance landscape. They could use their expertise to guide you on ways to save hundreds on your policies, while leaving it up to your park ranger to save the wilderness and any endangered picnic baskets. Go online to geico.com local to find a GEICO agent near you.